This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. A very good morning to a friend and colleague, Tom Blue. I have been waiting three seasons to have Tom join me on the Power of Genetics podcast. So welcome, Tom. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to get to see and talk to you. So today's a little bit different. Usually I have a Dr. So-and-so or a Dr. So-and-so, but actually what is so fantastic about having Tom join us is Tom is one of those behind-the-scenes individuals who is having a huge impact on the way we practice medicine, the way we practice nutrition. And as you well know, my favorite topic on this podcast is how certain individuals go out there and change paradigms or ways of doing things. So Tom, perhaps you could start off. I always kind of start off like, I hate the idea of reading out a bio. So I always ask my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, where you came from, what you studied, where you live and why, like why you kind of started out and what you did and how that kind of evolved. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I guess if I were, if I were to encapsulate what has been a, uh, a big focus of mine, it's, it has been, you know, innovating around, around delivery models for, you know, for sort of next generation healthcare and, you know, with a particular focus on primary care and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, sort of preventive health. I stumbled into it, frankly, you know, in, in a, as people do more than 20 years ago, like 21, 22 years ago now, I'd been doing some interesting work in, uh, again, weird, by a weird set of turn of events with uh, commercializing a set of patents from NASA Langley in, I live in Virginia and, and just so down the road, uh, they were commercializing some patents that had to do with, with attention training using EEG biofeedback. And and we develop a consumer electronics essentially ver- you know, packaging of a EEG biofeedback device that went into clinical trials. And one day I found myself, you know, when it's you know, things in clinical trials you can't sell it, and uh, and the investors had decided that, that they were going to chop the patents up and sell this off. So we weren't going to continue the company. And one of the board members, you know, approached me and said, "Look, I think I would love to enlist your help in starting up a medical practice." You know, and she had read an article on an airplane about a concierge medical practice that had sparked up out near where you are in Seattle, and was imagining that that it would be wonderful to have such a thing in uh, in in Richmond, Virginia, where where we live. And it was an interesting idea in so much as neither of us were doctors. And so starting a medical practice when neither of us were doctors or had ever worked in a medical practice before, <laughs> but as you know, circumstances you know, were, you know, I kind of didn't have anything else to do. And it sounded like an exciting adventure to embark on. And so off we went and, and formed the first concierge medical practice in Virginia. And it was probably only, I don't know, maybe the 12th or 13th. There were very few oh, of them at the time. Yeah. In fact, it was just... It, you know, it was barely understood that doing it was even legal. So to give you an idea of how much has changed in 20 years, in 2001, when we were doing this, there was actually a very real question as to whether a doctor could legally sell to a patient a service which was not covered by insurance. And uh, yes, <clears throat> yes, sir. 
And at oh, the time, wow. it was only a memo by Tommy Thompson, the then acting health and uh, human services, that in fact you know, memorialized that it was in fact a permissible thing for a doctor to sell to a patient something not covered by insurance. So if you think about that, that sort of you know bit of history in U.S. healthcare. Oh. And the influence of the payer system over what was at the time accessible to patients, it's just a really interesting thing to note. So anyway, so we set this practice up. Now, most as practitioners listening to this will know, if you've ever done this, most membership-based practices are born out of what people call a, a practice conversion. And so the story would be a doctor who has been in his or her community for a long time, loved by patients fed up by the payer system and having to work so fast and not have deep relationships with people, you know, might say, you know what, I want to, I'm going to switch to a membership model and, and accept the fact that, you know, 80% of my patients probably won't want it, but I'll stick with the 20% who do and they'll all pay, you know, $1,800 a year or whatever, possibly in addition to insurance or not. And I'll carry on that way. And that's how most of these practices are born. And so, but in our case, because none of us are doctors, we had to go find a doctor that wanted to do this thing that might not even be legal and no one had ever heard of before. And this is back in a time when it's like a copay is $10. Yeah, Yeah, it was the primary care kind of crisis hadn't hit. Literally a copay was 10 or $20. You could easily get an appointment and find a doctor that had space for you. So it was a daunting task to try and create a value proposition that would compel a person to want to reach into their pocket and again, do something that was almost unheard of, which would be to, well, literally unheard of, to invest your own money above and beyond a copay in an encounter of any kind with a physician. So anyway, we finally found a guy. I mean, it was hard to find someone to do this. We found someone to do it. He lived way out of town and seven patients followed him into the practice. So now we have built out of space, all this, you know, and, and there's seven patients. So now as we're doing this, I had this the, the need to, of course, identify where we wanted to set up. Now, this story, by the way, is going to get to a point that we can sort of probably build the whole conversation around. So be patient. It's an interesting tip. So, all right, where, you know, it's like, you know, set up a medical bar. It's got to have a place to have it. So I'm driving around looking at medical spaces. And there's this one that was in sort of a medical park. And as I was looking at it, I'm like, the interesting thing about this space was it was right next door. Like it shared a wall with Richmond's first electron beam tomography scanner. You know, so this sort the CT scanner that basically did three things. And I loved it because I didn't understand any of the three things really, but it looked like the Starship Enterprise. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, if we set up right next to this and heaven forbid there's some role that this machine can play in our service, it would just like, whatever that thing is will rub off, the coolness of it will rub off on us. That was literally my thinking on this. And so what this machine did, it did three things. It did a whole body scan, which to me sounded awesome. It did a virtual colonoscopy, which to me sounded awesome. I'm like, who wouldn't rather have a fake, you know, virtual colonoscopy than a real one. And then it did something I had no earthly idea what it even meant. So it sounded not awesome, which was coronary calcium scan. And so it turned out, yeah, so we immediately did weave this thing into our annual health assessment. And and the coolness of this machine was in the exact opposite order. The whole body scan was a disaster because of all the incidental omas with CT scanning. It scared the crap out of everyone. So we immediately stopped using it. The virtual colonoscopy was a total disaster because you have to be inflated with air in order to do it. And so it's like we're inflating people full of air only to then tell them they have to have a real colonoscopy if they they see anything in there. So that was a joke. 
And it turned out the real value of this was in the coronary calcium scoring and the early identification of cardiovascular disease. And so at that very same time, you know, so we're now using this down in North Carolina, a lab called Liposcience had just come into being and they were the very first folks really pioneering the advanced lipid testing. So, you know, fractionating lipids out so you could see particle size and all this other stuff, get much better insight into the value or the risk of your lipid profile. And meanwhile, we have a doctor with seven patients. And so the doctor's got plenty of time on his hands to learn about the calcium scoring next door, the liposcience down in North Carolina. And a few months later, we had what probably was as good or, or you know, at, the, at the very tippity top of cardiovascular risk assessment and, and management capabilities in this brand new medical practice. And so what dawned on me at that very time, and that practice grew and grew, it was then acquired by a, like an equity fund. It's, it's now, it, it has multiple, it's a very, very large concierge medical practice. So it's, it's, it's continued to do well. What I learned though, in that very first year, was and has proven to be a driving force in the rest of my professional life is that there are really two worlds of of medicine. There's the world that everyone knows. And then there's this future world that's actually here today that is where it's like you can step into it and access a version of medicine that's 10 or 15 years beyond what we think of today. And so, and I saw this with this coronary calcium scoring and the advanced lipid testing and the early detection of heart disease we would do, you know, for all these patients and how dramatic the, you know, the effect of redirecting the trajectory of their health was as a result of this. And so, I, you know, it was quite remarkable to me. I'm like, I started to, to reflect. I'm like, this is kind of wild that there's a future of healthcare that exists today and yet almost no one has access to it. And so then I started thinking, well, so what is it that enables a person to have access to the future of medicine today? And the answer to that is that you have to have two things, basically. You have to have a a doctor or a practitioner that is willing and able to learn about this new thing, and which is not as simple as it sounds, because most (laughs) practitioners live on a treadmill of productivity and are, as more and more of them are part of large groups and health systems, you know, they're constrained as to what they can actually do. And in some cases, even what they can learn. So you need that one remarkable thing. The second thing that you need that's remarkable is you need a patient population that is willing to make an investment in their health that is not covered by insurance. And so recognizing that that the payer system, despite at that time, the fact that it, it literally was dictating what we had access to, the payer system you know, is it, it shouldn't be the curator of the healthcare services that you make available to yourself to manage your, you know, the future of your own health. And that, in fact, you and your doctor should be the curator of those services and the money, whether it is or isn't covered by insurance, is a secondary factor. And when you think about it, you know, while we're on that topic, we have a confusion in the United States. I don't know. I'd be curious to know if this confusion exists in South Africa. Yeah, but in the U.S., we have a very confused relationship with health insurance, even to this day. And, and so you know, people listening to this conversation right now, I would imagine all of them have probably three types of insurance. They have their auto insurance, they have their homeowner's insurance, and they have their health insurance, and maybe other, maybe life, whatever. But, but in the, if you think of those three types that almost everybody has, the, in two of the three cases, we have a really clear understanding of the relationship that we've entered into 
We have entered into a financial arrangement that allows us to be protected from financial ruin in the unlikely event of a horrible car crash, your house burns down, things like this. You know, in the case of health insurance, however, we have this delusion that insurance should pay for not only the catastrophe, but the preventive maintenance of our health. And so it's like when you think of this in the context of the other two, it's like you wouldn't expect Geico to rotate your tires, change your windshield wiper blades, put oil in the car. You know what I mean? It's like, that's absurd. Of course, Geico wouldn't pay for that. But in the case of health insurance, we have abdicated responsibility for the care and maintenance of our bodies, you know, which is not, by the way, a risk. There's no risk associated with prevention. 100% of us need it. And there is also no financial ruin associated with accessing it. So it's an inappropriate use of insurance. And yet it's become deeply, deeply etched into our psyche as the American healthcare consumer. And so when you can help someone break with that relationship with insurance, which oftentimes is as simple as this three minutes we've devoted to this right now, it's like people wake up, they're like, this is absurd. That's not the role of insurance, you know, to be the arbiter of what I do from a preventive maintenance standpoint. That's a matter of personal values. And I pay for it on my own. Suddenly a whole new world of healthcare opens up in front of us. And it turns out as fascinating as I found this, it's a thing that it's been studied, this time lag between when something is proven to work well, safely, it should be in widespread use, and the time in which that thing becomes widely used in medicine, holding aside a pharmaceutical. Yeah, It's, It's like 17 years. And the name that is given to this time delay is called the translational gap. And so I am very much about my, or my, at least my career has been very much about compressing the translational gap and finding ways to do that at greater and greater scale. How's that for a 15 minute answer to a simple question? (laughs) 15 minutes, three minutes. Well, I thought it was an amazing, amazing 15 minutes and a lot of food for thought. And so while I was listening to you, so I think the thing is that I need to kind of contemplate and really resonate is the idea of our expectation around health insurance and why perhaps we're always disappointed because our expectations are actually wrong. And it's easier to abdicate our responsibility of prevention to a company rather than do the work ourselves. So fascinating. So I've never thought of it that way. I'm going to contemplate it more. So just to give some context, I have had countless interactions with you in the last, what, 10, 15 years. And so some of the more, I just want to touch on some of the more interesting ones to just show how Tom kind of functions in this world of healthcare. But the first one I think was, well, I've heard you speak a few times, but the first interesting one is when I took a course that James Maskell offered around converting your... So I had a clinic, a nutrigenomics clinic, and I wanted to convert it to... I don't know what you call it. It wasn't concierge, but it was like, what do you call it? Subscription-based? Yeah, membership. Yeah, but yeah. It's concierge. Yeah, membership-based kind of concierge practice. And I wanted to do this course that James Maskell was offering, but it actually ended up being Tom talking for like three days. There was no James. It was just Tom. I just listened to Tom teaching us how to convert the practice. So that was my first engagement, which was amazing. And then when I found that 3X4, of course, 3X4 Genetics, so the great story is Tom and I were at a conference in, I think it was Seattle, and we were both wandering around the exhibition hall instead of being in a presentation, which is what Tom and I often do. And I think I was making tea, as I often do, and bumped into Tom and said, hi, how are you? Do you remember me? Anyway, and I, and he's like, what are you up to, as Tom often does? And I thought, I started this genetics company in South Africa, and we got chatting, and I showed him the report, and he's like, 
you're in South Africa. Like, what are you doing in South Africa? Why aren't you in America? And I'm like, well, it's, I'm not sure. It's too soon. We're still testing the product. And I remember you were like, this is insane. You need to come to America right now. And that conversation with Tom actually changed the trajectory of 3x4 completely. Because after that conversation, I went back to South Africa and said, we're pivoting the company. We're going to America. And here we are two years in. And, and, and really, it began with Tom kind of looking at what we were doing and going, there's nothing like this in the States. So, so thank you very much for that very pivotal moment. And in fact, because of it, Tom actually joined us right in the beginning when we were trying to figure out as an advisor of how to come into the US and what it would look like. And we had some very funny moments with Tom trying to help us set up. So, so the reason I wanted Tom on, on this is because he's my go-to guy of what is happening. You know, I always say like Tom's got more fingers and more pies in this healthcare space than anyone else know. And if there is an interesting company out in the marketplace, Tom's usually talking to them or knows about them or is involved with them or is helping them. So I guess what would be interesting to know is because you are so kind of connected with what is happening is based on your initial story, which I loved, and where we are now 20 years later, in effect, mm-hmm. what is your perception of what is happening at the moment? Like, what are you seeing out there and hearing that is exciting you and that is like inspiring you for what the next decade is going to bring? Well, it's interesting. At this moment, if you fast forward from 20 years ago, what are the things that have happened? Well, the health values of the consumer population have evolved dramatically. And, and it's not just that we're becoming more enlightened. I honestly think in, in the United States, I think that that evolution has had a lot to do with essentially the, the, the increasing assignment of healthcare costs to the consumer in the form of high deductible policies. And so it's like gradually folks are waking up to the fact that being unhealthy costs money. And I'm kind of paying my own bills anyway, anyway. <laughs> you know, in the form of a deductible that most people never meet anyhow. So it's like, so there's a far greater willingness of people to go out on their own and invest in their own health than there was 20 years ago. So that's a big, a big cultural awakening. And, you know, simultaneous to that, you know, we've had, and again, this is a, I'm, I'm unpacking this in a, in a U.S. kind of way, you know, uh, you know, hopefully perfect. the audience is no, that's good value out of that. <laughs> Another big thing that happened was uh, with Obamacare the uncapping of lifetime limits on insurance, and so the importance of that is is that I mean I can remember back in the 1990s my mom had been very ill. We were very conscious as a as a household about her hitting a lifetime limit. I want to say it was like of a million dollars cumulatively, after which the insurance company was off the hook for medical bills. And so it was like, you know, it was a big thing. Well, that is no longer the case. You can run up a $30 million medical bill in one year now. And so what's happened, of course, is that we now have the, you know, these these specialty medications that, you know, that cost $6,000 a month. It's, you know, it's, it's uncapped things. So it's messed with our health economy, but it's also created a huge value around the ability to alter the trajectory of a person's health and reverse a chronic condition uh, if you can activate the patient in that process. So the market for this type of thing, the future of health that we're talking about, is now no longer just the health enthusiast consumer, but the self-insured employer and possibly the health plan and maybe one day, you know, the government itself. And so the, the appetite for the sorts of things that get us excited is, is far, far larger than it, you know, than it was. This is not just luxury medicine for wealthy people anymore. It's critically important, the whole concept of reversing chronic disease. 
So that's happened. Then you throw in, well, I'll break my chronological order. You know, I guess then you throw in to you know to bring this into your world, you know, you know, the sequencing of the of the human genome. And what that's done, sort of the evolution of the of the story of health that's occurred in our lifetime. So if you think about this, and I actually, this has been, this has just been a real fascination of mine as well, thinking about health consumers and us as stewards of our own health. If you think about it from the dawn of time, basically, you know, literally, that people started thinking about their health, you know, until only very recently. The basic story in terms of the locus of control for health was was always the same. In the, you know, 2000 years ago, maybe your health was a matter of the will of the gods, your past sins, bad luck, whatever. It certainly wasn't within your control. Fast forward all the way to 2001, we're told by, you know, the news by Bill Clinton and Craig Venter and and the news that we've cracked the code of life. And now we have the book of, of health, you know, in the form of our genetics. And if you think about it, it's a much more high tech story, but the locus of control was still one of predestination in the form of whatever's in your genetics. And so only since then have we started to realize that in fact, what, 70, 80% of what we experience as health or disease arises from the interaction of what we do with our genetics to dictate how those genetics are expressed and what we experience as health. You know, which is to say that in the last, 12, 13, 14 years, the locus of control for health is 180 degree shift from predestination to self-determinants. And so what we can then conclude is if 80 or so percent of our health arises from what we do, then health is more than anything. You'd have to conclude a skill that we have to develop and cultivate. And the problem with that is we can't easily build a school to teach the skill of health because as you well know better than anyone, the, the behaviors that lead to optimal health for me because of my unique genetics are different than they are for you. And so there's this need to personalize. And so it's like we're in this moment where, where A, people are just awakening to the agency they have over the future of their health. Then they're beginning to realize those, you know, a, a, a smaller group. It's like, well, geez, I can't just do this. On my, there's no one size fits all. You know, that's all the diet books that sit on everyone's shelf. It's like, you know, it's, it's been a great example of how you just can't find the one thing that works for everybody. And so there's this need for personalization and, and to make personalization accessible and affordable. And as a practical matter, you know, it, you know what I the way I view personalization is from a health promoting standpoint is it's it increases the return on effort that people put into into their health. Like you and I were talking about the other day with the elimination diet, you know, the, the ability possibly to use genetics to spare the effort of having to go through the gauntlet of an elimination diet, to me, is a very important thing. If we think about it, let's come back to a discussion of the value formula for health, and, and we can dive more deeply into that. So then the last thing that I would say, you know, has kind of happened that's shaping what's exciting and happening today is COVID, which has done two things. Number one, it has radically accelerated the acceptance of healthcare delivered virtually. Radically, yeah, accept 10 years. And the second thing that it's done is it has, for many people, I think, exposed the difference between managing, quote, managing a chronic disease and reversing a chronic disease. Meaning that the, the quote, well-managed diabetic was 
exposed by COVID. It's like you may be taking your meds and your insulin and whatever, but COVID looked right past that and exploited that, that vulnerability. Whereas the person who did the work to reverse diabetes had a totally different risk profile. And so I think a lot of people woke up to this ridiculousness of a well-managed, you know, the chronic disease. You know, it's funny. I can remember doing a talk, I don't know, 10 years ago or something on, on this ridiculous oxymoron that we've been sold as a society that we can be sick and healthy at the same time. And I Googled at the time, I Googled sick, healthy and went to the images and there's all these books and apps, how to be sick, how to be well while being sick. And, you know, it was, it's, it's a terrifically profitable campaign for, you know, for the system to convince us that sickness and health are not mutually exclusive things. And we can be both at the same time. It's a wonderful, wonderful campaign. But, you know, if you're, if you're making money on, 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 on yeah, exactly. So, so anyway, so I think, so that then sets the stage for where we are today. So let's think about, and then I'll go throw in one other thing. Following the, you know, people are familiar with Moore's law and the radically advancing efficiencies of technologies, it's simultaneous to their declining cost. And what we've seen in, in, in the world of, of precision health is that Moore's law is being dramatically outpaced by, like, look at the costs of sequencing a human genome, you know, going from a, whatever it was, a million dollars, you know, back in 2000 or, or $100 million dollars you know, to where it is today at, you know, certainly sub 1000. I don't even know what, a, you yeah. know, it, it's, it's hundreds of dollars. And so you see that, you see the same thing uh, in the sensor technologies that, that we now have access to where, you know, we both, I think are wearing aura rings and, you know, and, and you can put your continuous glucose monitor on for 50 bucks or whatever. It's like, we now have access, you know, to, we're, we're able to harness I'll, I'll quote a, a guy that, you know, that I, I once spent the day with a guy named Patrick Soon Shung, who said he was a physician and physician entrepreneur. He said, we are all a human data signal engine, was what he said. And what you said, we're broadcasting data out of our bodies all the time. And today, we actually have the capacity to capture a lot of that passively and make sense of it and blend it, you know, with the data we can gather from, you know, from sequencing our genome and what have you, and derive huge insights from it. And so, and those sensors are now affordable, as are the testing that, you know, that allows us to, you know, to really engage in real, in real personalization and maximize our return on effort. And so I think that, you know, you kind of combine these things that we're going to see, you know, more and more at scale, personalized health interventions that are focused on disease reversal, certainly health promotion as well, but the big market for it in terms of return on investment is in the reversal of chronic conditions and changing the cost trajectory delivered virtually by multidisciplinary care teams. So not every, not everything falls to the shoulders of the doctor. It, you know, you've got health coaches and nutrition professionals and others that are, that actually, when you build out these episodes of care, you realize very quickly that it's, it's those allied practitioners that actually carry the bulk actually of the, holding the, space. the relationship. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. So I think we're going to see an explosion in that, in, particularly in the health coaching profession, as these things take place. And I think we're going to see that the way healthcare is packaged is going to evolve. And this is a little bit humbling for me to say, because as you know, I, I spent many, many, many years really evangelizing a, a subscription-based model for care delivery, which I still actually believe in, in you know, for primary care and things that are a relationship that's evergreen. But the truth of the matter is, is that the way people that, that have a health problem want to buy health solutions yeah, is they want to buy the outcome. You know, they don't want they a subscription the, that implies the, the outcome. Yeah. It's like, I want a fixed package that's designed to solve my problem. 
And yeah. I think we're going to see more and more. I am almost literally all of my work these days is, is built around building, you know, the tech, in technical parlance, bundled episodes of care that target particular problems. And so there's all kinds of, of benefits to that method of packaging in terms of inherently that structure drives innovation and efficiency that creates value instead of creating more cost, which is sort of the way a fee-for-service model naturally breeds more cost because everyone participating wants to maximize their revenue. Does that answer your question as to where? That totally does. I've got a whole lot more than I was hoping for, expecting. And I totally agree. And if I look at the last couple of episodes of the podcast that are recorded, it's all about disease reversal. So it's Dale Bredesen, it's Dr. Perlmutter, it's, you know, it's, um, so we're talking about migraine, we're talking about Alzheimer's, we're talking about cardiovascular, yeah. we're talking about diabetes. And, you know, I remember when I spoke to, to Dr. Bredesen, it was about this idea of these chronic diseases being optional and not inevitable. And I think that that is such a fundamental shift. And I completely agree about the episodes of care rather than that kind of long, really kind of unimaginable outcome. So I think we're seeing the same thing. And I think there's incredible value. If, uh, you know, I think I might have to come back for another season because I want to, really want to talk about kind of that that value formula for, for care. And I think there's so much our practitioners can learn from what you're saying about how they think about their practices, how they think about their patients, how they think about their future and what they should be looking for, you know, bringing a little bit of your philosophy into their practice of what's coming in the future that's actually here. And I think that story about the coronary calcium is amazing because I actually didn't realize it was out in the market so early. Yeah. You know, and when, yeah, I mean, people say, I tell people I built my, the first neutrogenome test in 2000, they're like, 2000 that was like three years before you know so I think I think that's all extremely valuable and and I know your time is also valuable so I'm going to finish with one last question and I am going to have you back in the next set because I have so many other questions I want to talk through but let's just round it out as this is the power of genetics podcast so mm -hmm. we need to just give it a little and, and you have touched on it but having watched the evolution of genetics, and I think you said it so beautifully when you spoke about this locus of control around kind of this destiny of genetics when the world was defined genetics by SNPs. And now we know that we can change gene expression, the world of epigenetics, that we can use genetics to understand who we are, but we can make decisions and choices to change gene expression. And I love what you said, because that actually defined perfectly my career going from the first 10 years, even the first 15 years, where my whole world was gene variants and SNPs, you know, and this is what we've got. And now the last kind of five, six, seven years has all been about how do we like enlighten people to make decisions that can change gene expression. So I think that defined my career beautifully. But to go back to my question, which is how do you see genetics playing a role in healthcare now and into the next future? What is what is your idea on how we're going to see genetics play out? A little bit, I mean, you did cover it a little bit, but maybe just a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say genetics in many ways is it's sort of the most exciting and the most disappointing thing that's happened <laughs> Love it. you know in the last oh, I totally agree totally agree and yeah. so and so and so let's talk about genetics more from a health promoting standpoint or a disease reversal standpoint and not you know the many other applications of genetics but from that perspective and I, I'm sure I'm not unique at all in this in this regard have always found is is like the patient experience with with genetics is always such a letdown you know, because it's, it's, yeah. And it's, yeah. and, and from the practitioner perspective, it's so difficult because you're, you've got so much data 
And you've got to somehow synthesize it into a 20 minute or 30 minute or a, a reasonable consultation and hold the attention of a person and, and reduce it to just a few things to take action on. And so it's a massive ask of, of the practitioner who doesn't have a lifetime to spend on this, which is why I, 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 your report when, we, when you first showed it to me was so uh, striking. There's been so little creativity brought to how to solve this problem. It's like there's this massive wealth of insight in this giant vat of data. And, and it's like you're asking a practitioner who hasn't devoted a career like you have to, to somehow fashion a consult that means something to someone and that prompts action. And so the potential is, is that you have the skeleton key to finding the highest return things to invest your effort and time and money in. You know, and now it's affordable, you know? So it's, it's like you've got this potential skeleton key, but it has to be made digestible to the consumer and applicable to the practitioner. And so I, I actually think that, and I continue to think, that where you've really led the field is in the most important way, which is you know, the, the creative presentation of this information in a way that a consumer can receive it, a practitioner can convey it, and they don't have to become a genius like you are. You know, they've got the consult in their hand and they can much more easily learn to have a high impact consult from that, you know, from that presentation of genetics than any other presentation of genetics that I've ever seen, which tends to be sold by the pound. You know, it's like, here's your 80 page report. You know, it's, it, it, it means you know, nothing. 10,000 genes. That means exactly. Nothing. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah. I think that, that that's what we're going to see. And so there's a couple of bits of real value that I'm hoping that people will start to get from their genetics. One is the insight leading to a greater willingness to invest effort. And so moving people in one giant fell swoop across the, you know, the readiness to change continuum from like, I felt disempowered to, holy crap, I'm understanding some things about myself. And I know that if I invest effort he only here and here, I'll, I'll move the needle. And so creating that positive momentum, I think is going to be huge. And the truth of the matter is, the first evolution of that is creating an army of practitioners of various types capable of delivering a high impact consultation. Of course, is born out of a, a well built report and presentation from a you know, from a, an innovator like you. Yeah, and I think that's you know, I mean, I, obviously, I love our report, but I think the one thing I understood is that you you, know, you can't. I totally agree about genetics. You know, underwhelming. It's been the greatest success and the greatest failure of the last two decades. And that we figured out how to test it, but we didn't figure out how to translate it and make it valuable and impactful. And I have my favorite slide in any deck I have is insight and action. You know, genetics gives us insight, but we need to drive action. And action is where we use nutrition and choices to switch right. on switch of genes and really impact health. And I think, as I said, my first part of my career was all about insight. And now I've finally been able to bring the two together. And I think when I launched 3 Explore. I realized, first of all, the failures of, of the industry that I'd been a part of for, two, for a decade and a half, I would say, and then suddenly had the epiphany that we were just not changing lives, you know, not changing behavior, that we had outsourced that idea that genetics should change, like drive behavioral change and just said, here's some data, figure it out. Right. And, I, and, and the whole premise of 3X4 was not to just offer a better report and a better science, which I believe we have but to really uplift the whole industry. And, and that means, as you say, like teaching, educating, mentorship, 
community, you know, bring multi-practitioner practitioners together, help them be educated in a way that actually is meaningful, provide a value proposition, and most important, like the action piece. The action piece, like how does this drive behavioral change? But, and, and so I loved your like whole kind of like from inside like DNA sequence through to actually I wake up in the morning and I'm having a different breakfast than I had yesterday. So I think it's going to be interesting another 10 years when I look back at these couple of decades and see, you know, sometimes you never step away because you're so close. And I think our conversation today has been really amazing for me because I actually look back and think of how how things have evolved so much, locus of control, that insight to action, and where our real power lies is in that translational value to the patient. And, and that comes back to your initial conversation, which is about all of us taking responsibility for our health. So I love this conversation, Tom Blue. I always love our conversations, but this has been particularly um, thought-provoking for me. So thank you very much for joining me. And we're absolutely, we're going to have to continue in another season because I Anytime. think there's just so much value to practitioners to be thinking about these things, which they don't hear. You know, they're not on a daily basis having these conversations. None of us are. Right. So thank you very, very much. And I look forward to the next time. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me and great to see you. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.